Good morning. It's good to see each and every one of you. Uh, last Sunday, we took a little break from our study of John's gospel account. And this morning, we're going to get back on track. We are in John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And simply put, this chapter consists of, of three sections. Uh, three divisions in verses 1 to 11, we have an incident. The scribes and the Pharisees bring that woman caught in adultery and place her before the Lord Jesus. Uh, they declare the law, the law of Moses says that such a woman should be stoned to death. What do you think? What do you say? Uh, they're trying to entrap him. Uh, they're looking for a reason to arrest him. And if you remember that sermon, you will recall that the Lord Jesus turns the tables on them. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. In other words, uh, you are accusing this woman of a scandalous sin. You're calling for her death. But let's face facts. I know what's going on in your heart. Everyone looking on knows you're plotting to kill me. Her sin is nothing in comparison to yours. So he who is without sin, let him pick up a stone. And cast it at this woman. And one by one they recede into the crowd. That's the incident. And then in verses 12 through 20 we have a claim. And it's succinct, it's clear, it's pointed. We find it in verse 12. The Lord Jesus claims, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Man is in darkness. He is in intellectual darkness, hardened in heart, in mind rather. He is in moral darkness, hardened in heart. And the reason he suffers from intellectual darkness and moral darkness is his spiritual darkness. He is separated from God, who is the source of light. And so the Lord Jesus makes this great claim, I am the light of the world. I am the one who reveals man's sin. And I am the one who points the way to salvation, namely his cross. And then there is finally a third section, beginning in verse 21, right through to the end of the chapter, verse 58, in which there is a reaction or a response. So we have the incident, we have the claim, now a reaction. As the Lord Jesus reveals his deity, and as he reveals man's depravity, uh, the Jews react, and there is a fourfold response. First of all, they respond intellectually, verse 25, so they said to him, who are you? They want to argue. They want to debate. They want to challenge his claim to deity and what he is saying about their sinfulness. And then there is a second response. Verse 33, they respond emotionally. And there they answer him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? You tell us that if we believe in you, you will free us. Well, look, it. We, we don't believe for one moment that we need to be set free because we don't accept for one moment that we are enslaved. We are the sons of Abraham. And they're offended. They're flabbergasted that he would suggest such a thing pointing to their enslavement to sin. And then thirdly, they respond personally. Verse 48, they know they cannot confront his arguments. They know they have no response to his reasoning. And so they get personal. Verse 48, they answer him. Are we not right in saying that you are Samaritan? Nothing lower than a Samaritan in the Jews' eyes. 
and you have a demon. And then there's a fourth and final response in verse 59. They react physically. They picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. That's chapter 8. But we have a little unfinished business with chapter 8. And it's one statement that's found in verse 58. It is the apex, the climax of the chapter. It is perhaps the climax of Christ's teaching in the entire gospel. And here he declares in no uncertain terms, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And that is what I want us to reflect upon this morning. This statement, as it is uttered from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, to help us reflect on that and to help us understand it, we must, we have no other option, we must return to the Old Testament. And we must go all the way back, and I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. And I want to read several verses for you that will set the context and help us understand exactly what the Lord Jesus is saying in John 8. Verse 58. And so follow along now as I read in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 10. And God is speaking to Moses. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am. Has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I trust most of us remember the context of this incident. Perhaps this is a little unfamiliar to you. Let me set the context as simply as I can. Moses raised in Egypt as an adult, 40 years of age, approximately in a fit of rage. He murders an Egyptian. Pharaoh hears of Moses' sin, and so Moses has to flee. He leaves the land of Egypt. He ends up in the land of Midian. He meets a man named Jethro, who is a priest of God. He actually ends up marrying one of Jethro's daughters, and he works for Jethro for 40 years in the wilderness, tending Jethro's flocks, sheep, sheep, rather. On this, that isn't a Canadian word, that's just no word anywhere, (laughs) sheep. But if you like it, go with it. 
Here he is on this one particular occasion in the desert, in the land of Midian, shepherding these sheep as he's done for these long 40 years. But on this particular day, something extraordinary happens. He sees this bush, this burning bush. Nothing extraordinary about a bush on fire. But what is extraordinary, exceptional about this particular bush is that it is not consumed. Hmm, thinks Moses. He draws near. I need to get a better look. This is something worth seeing. This is something people are going to want to hear about. And as he draws near to that bush, he hears a voice speak to him from the midst of the bush. Moses, take off the sandals from your feet, for the ground you now walk upon is holy. In other words, Moses, you, a mere creature, dust. You are about to enter the presence of the Creator. So first things first, Moses, the sandals off of your feet. Why? Because in Scripture, feet are a symbol of creatureliness. Feet are a symbol of of our finitude. Feet are a symbol of the fact that we are nothing but dust. And so God wants to convey this to Moses. Moses, you who are finite are about to enter the presence of the infinite. And so the sandals off from your feet. For the ground you now walk upon is holy. And so Moses draws near. And God commissions Moses. He wants Moses to return to the land of Egypt. He wants him to go back there. So that he might lead the children of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land. The land that God had promised, he had covenanted to give to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. This is an understatement. Moses is less than enthusiastic. He wants no part of it. He's looking for excuses. And finally, he focuses in on this excuse. God, if I go back there... They're going to want to know your name. They're going to want to know who has sent me. They're going to want to know by what authority I make such an outlandish claim that is to lead them from Egypt to the promised land. They're going to want to know who you are. And so in response, God reveals to Moses his name. The name, God's name as it is recorded for us here in our English Bibles is Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. In the Hebrew, four consonants. Y, H, W, H. How we pronounce it as Yahweh or as Jehovah. When you find the word God in the Bible, in the Hebrew, it is either L, which means power, Or Elohim, the plural of power, the most powerful one or the one to be dreaded. When you find the word Lord, capital L, small O-R-D, that is either Adon, singular, or the plural Adonai in the Hebrew. Lord, Master. But whenever we read Scripture and we see Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, It is God's personal name, Y-H-W-H, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah. Not only does God reveal his name to Moses in this incident, but he reveals the significance or the meaning of his name. He tells them right there in verse 14, God said to Moses, 
I am who I am. Aye, Asher, aye. I am who I am. I am who I have always been. I am who I will always be. I am the great I am. There is the meaning of God's personal name. Whenever you talk about Elohim or El Elyon or El or Adonai, these are titles, if you like, that we ascribe to God. But when we enter into the realm of Lord, that is Yahweh, we have here what is known as God's personal name. This is God's name. Years pass by. And we fast forward. Centuries pass by. And we have the rise and fall of world empires, the Assyrian Empire, followed by the Babylonian Empire, followed by the Persian Empire, followed by the Greek Empire. And Philip of Macedonia, what is it, 4th century B.C., manages to unite all of those Greek city-states, and he passes these on to his son, his son, uh, famous Alexander the Great. And Alexander inherits that Greek kingdom from his father, Philip, and immediately he goes on the offensive and he begins to to move all the way east through Turkey, all the way to India, all the way down through Palestine to Egypt. And as he goes, he establishes Greek city-states. And he spreads Greek culture and he spreads the Greek language. And that language becomes known as koine, meaning common Greek. And in the second century B.C., there are a number of Jews living in the city of Alexandria in Egypt. One day they're sitting around. I'm not sure if this is quite how it transpired, but they're looking at each other. Hey, most of us speak Greek. Wouldn't it be great to have a Greek translation of our Hebrew scriptures? And so they set about translating the Old Testament into Greek. That translation is known to us as the Septuagint. And as we read the Greek Septuagint, and as we find God's personal name, I am, we discover that it is translated in Greek as Ego Eimi. And as we come to John chapter 8, verse 58, and we hear the cry of the Lord Jesus Christ before the nation of Israel, before the Jews, before Abraham was, I am Ego Amy, it is perfectly clear what he is saying. They got it because what was their reaction? They immediately picked up stones to throw at him. The Lord Jesus declares in the most plain, obvious manner he possibly can that he is the great I am. What I want us to do this morning is reflect upon this name. I want to reflect upon what this name tells us about God. I want us to reflect upon what this name, what this name should, should mean to us. A writing at the time of the Reformation, uh, Luther, Martin Luther wrote to Erasmus, quite cheeky really, he said to Erasmus, your thoughts of God are too human. That's what he said to Erasmus. It is a charge that could be levied against the church throughout its history. Our thoughts of God are far too human. 
Our thoughts of God are far too small, minuscule. And what we desperately need is to think great thoughts of God. That's what I want to do this morning. I I want to lead us, I want to lead myself, encourage us to think great thoughts of God as they are revealed in His personal name. And as the Lord Jesus Christ Himself assumes and claims this name as He reveals His true identity. And I'm simply going to ask two questions. The first is this. What does this name reveal to us about God? What does it declare? What does it tell us? And then secondly, what does this great name, I Am, mean to us? Or what should it mean to us? And so we begin this morning with the first question. What does this name, Yahweh, I Am, reveal to us? Now, by way of warning, I'm going to be a little theological. Uh, That shouldn't frighten you. That should actually excite you. Um, I'm all for theology. I'm all for doctrine, especially when it comes to our our understanding of God. Um, We can't know God without knowing about God. You can try, but you can't. that's That's true of our relationships one with another. I can't say I know someone unless I know something about that person. And so let's just imagine for some reason I'm traveling in southwest Texas, and for some reason I meet a man, and for some reason unknown to us this morning, I ask him, hey, do you know David George's in Glen Rose, Texas? And that individual replies, sure do. Short, chubby fellow with an Irish accent. We aren't talking about the same David George's. He can claim to know him. He can claim to know him intimately. He can claim to know him till he's blue in the face. But he doesn't know the first thing about him. So too when it comes to knowing God. Times we we talk to people, professing believers, and we begin to talk about God. Sadly, soon discover what? We're not talking about the same God. We cannot claim to know God unless we know about God. And so theology should excite us, doctrine should excite us, because all we mean by that is we're seeking to understand God as He reveals Himself to be. And when God says, I am, and when God says, this is my name, my eternal name, this is the name by which I must be remembered throughout all generations, God is revealing Himself to us. God is saying, you want to know me? Here's my name. You want to know who I am, what I am like? Here's my name. Because my name is the essence of my being. My name is the revelation of who I am. And so if we're serious about knowing God, then we need to be serious about knowing about God. And in particular, knowing what his personal name reveals concerning himself. And so what I'm going to give you this morning are five great revelations that are encapsulated, that are, that are packed into God's personal name. The first is this. This must be the starting point. God's name, I am, reveals that he is infinite. We aren't infinite. We are finite. I occupy this space behind the pulpit this morning. I don't occupy any other spaces that are out there. 
I am limited by time. I was born. I will die. And, and, and I live during, in between those two points of time according to the succession of time. I am limited by both space and time. I'm finite. You see, God is infinite. He is limitless. He is boundless. That is true in terms of space. He asks, do I not fill heaven and earth? Jeremiah 23, 24, that as we think of our universe that exists, there is not a corner of this universe. There is not an inch of this universe that God does not fill. If there are spaces beyond the space that is our universe, God fills those spaces too. And once we move beyond the realm of space, we still have God because space exists in God. You see, he is completely limitless, completely boundless. So, too, when it comes to time, before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. He has no beginning. He has no ending. He is beyond the succession of time. He is self-existent, meaning he finds the origin of his own life within himself. And it's not depending on anything external to his existence for his existence. But completely infinite when it comes to time. Because God is infinite in his being, that is infinite in space, infinite in time, he is infinite also in his attributes. Because you see, God's attributes, we get off on the right foot as soon as we introduce that word attribute because we think in terms of characteristics. But they aren't characteristics, they are properties of God. To be God is to be all-powerful. To be God is to be all-knowing, it is to be all-wise. And as he is infinite in his being, he is infinite in his properties, that is, in his attributes, there is no limit to his power, no limit to his knowledge, no limit to his wisdom, no limit to his authority, but he is boundless, limitless. He is simply, I am, I am. The second great revelation concerning God is as follows. He is unchangeable. I am who I am. We aren't like that. We change. Uh, We're babies, then we're toddlers, then we're adolescents, then we're adults. We're constantly changing, growing. We grow up, we grow out. The hair turns gray, the hair falls out. We are susceptible to this constant flux, this constant state of change. There are numerous processes inside of us and outside of us that cause us to to change and to alter in numerous, countless ways. God isn't like that. The hymn writer, the hymn writer writes, we blossom and we flourish as leaves on the tree and wither and perish, but not changeth thee. He is unchangeable in glory, unchangeable in goodness, unchangeable in power, unchangeable in wisdom. He is 
what he was, he is what he will be. He is the great I am. Not only is God unchangeable, but thirdly, God is sovereign. Or if you like, independent. I am who I am. I am not dependent on anything for my existence. I am not under any obligation. I am not under any constraint. I am not under any necessity. But God is a most free being. And from his freedom, that is from his independence, flows his sovereignty. You see, we aren't like that. We're extremely dependent. We're dependent on God for starters. We're dependent on food and water to live. We're dependent and we react. We're affected by our circumstances, by people, by countless things happening around us. Our life is one big reaction, one big big response to events as they unfold around us and influence us and affect us and, 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 and manipulate us in numerous, countless ways. But you see, God is above all that. Completely independent, therefore completely sovereign, independent in thought. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Romans 11.34 Independent in will, God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Daniel 4.35 Independent in power. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. Fourthly, God is faithful. God is faithful. Because he is infinite, he is unchangeable. And because he is unchangeable, he is, therefore, faithful. Uh, We change, therefore, we break our promises. Why? Because we change our mind. God does not change, therefore he does not change his mind. Therefore, it's not merely that he can keep his promises, but he does keep his promises. He cannot do anything else. He does not change his mind. He does not alter his plans. He does not modify his purposes. He does not forget his promises. Know, therefore, that the Lord, capital L, capital O, R and D, Yahweh, Know, therefore, that the Lord, your God, is God, the faithful God. And fifthly, God is merciful. Because he is infinite, he is independent or sovereign. And because he is sovereign, he is merciful. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, that's a stretch. I understood everything up to that point, but how do you get... From, from, from God's limitless, boundlessness to God's independence or sovereignty to God's mercy. We do so in Exodus chapter 33. There in Exodus chapter 33, Moses prays to God, show me your glory. Do you remember that? And God responds to Moses' request, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Uh, You want to see my glory? I will show you my glory. I will make all my goodness pass before you. And here's what I'm going to do to show you my glory. I will proclaim my name. I am before you. Well, what is that name? What is it that he promises to reveal, to unfold to Moses? 
We have the answer in the very next verse. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That's God's glory. That is God's name. Think about it, folks. Just think about it. Think about what Moses had seen. Moses has stood at the burning bush. That's pretty impressive. He's seen the ten plagues fall upon the land of Egypt, that desolation and destruction. He's seen the pillar of cloud and fire leading the children of Israel. He's seen the manna fall and the quail fall upon the earth. He's seen the Shekinah glory fill the tabernacle once it is built. He has seen all of these wonderful miracles. He has stood at the summit of Mount Sinai in the midst of the trumpet blast and the thunder and the lightning and the fire and the smoke. Wow! But after it all, Moses prayed. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. The fullness of your glory. The fullest statement, revelation possible of who you are. Moses, you want it? Here it is. I will make all my goodness pass before you. And Moses, I will proclaim my name, the Lord, before you. What is that name? I will be merciful. To whom I will be merciful, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That is God's name. That is God's glory. God's name is his freedom to bestow mercy on whomever he pleases, apart from any reason outside of himself. God's glory, God's goodness, God's name, that is who he is, his name, Yahweh, is his absolute liberty and freedom to impart, bestow mercy on whomever he pleases for no other reason than that which is found in his own immutable purpose. That scandalizes a lot of people. That actually upsets a lot of people. It shouldn't upset us. It shouldn't scandalize us. It should cause us to rejoice because, friend, think about it. Apart from an infinite God, apart from a sovereign God, and apart from a God whose very name is, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And I will be compassion, show compassion to whom I will show compassion. Apart from the immutable purpose of God to show mercy to whomever he pleases, we would never know mercy. If mercy were contingent upon us, if God's compassion rested upon me, God's grace were dependent upon something I have done, am doing, or could ever do, guess what? There would never be any mercy. There would never be any grace. There would never be any compassion. Because there is absolutely nothing in me that merits such favor from God. I revel. 
I celebrate. I rejoice in the fact that this is God's name and flowing from his infinite being, flowing from his immutability and flowing from his sovereignty is his grace and his mercy and his compassion bestowed upon me. And this great knowledge that this does not depend one iota upon me is my only assurance and hope and joy in life and death. I pray, God, it's yours. Is that your God? I dare say that's not the God of vast portions of Christendom today. Yet that is God's name. That is his glory. That is who he reveals himself to be. Let me repeat Luther's charge as he directed it at Erasmus. Your thoughts of God are too human. Thoughts of God far too puny, far too small. Oh, that we might think great thoughts after God. Please understand theology. These five truths as we've gone through them this morning concerning God, there is nothing impractical about it. You cannot get any more practical than these five truths. I dare say to you that our greatest need today is to know this God as he reveals himself to be. To worship this God as he reveals himself to be and not as we have created him in the figment of our own imagination. But to see him as he is and as he reveals himself in scripture. This is our greatest need You have personal problems. This is what you need. This God. We have marital problems, problems at work, relational problems, problem with kids. We need this God. Suffering with depression, disillusionment, discouragement. We need this God. Struggling with sin, besetting sin. And how hard I try, can't can't mortify it, can't get over it. We need this God. As A.W. Tozer wrote, and he was bang on, so few of us have let our hearts gaze and wonder at the I Am. Such thoughts are too painful for us. And for this we are now paying a far too heavy price in the secularization of our religion and in the decay of our inner lives. This is the God we need. This is the God we must revel in. This is the God who must be the object of our desire, the object of our delight. This is the God of whom the psalmist penned, my heart, what? It pants after you as a deer that pants for the water. This is the God in whom we must delight. It must be the focus of each and every affection, the focus of each and every thought. The one in whom our souls rest and delight. The great I am. That's the answer to the first question. What does this name reveal to us? As I look at my watch, do not dare look at yours. The second question is this. What does this name mean to us? I've already touched on it a little bit, but what 
You know, that's that's pretty amazing stuff. Well, what should it mean to me? First of all, God's name, I am, must be the object of our faith. The object of our faith. That takes us right back to John chapter 8. Takes us right back to John chapter 8, verse 24, where the Lord Jesus utters one of the most scandalizing statements that the unbeliever thinks has ever been uttered. It is this Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sin. Please, friend, tell me doctrine isn't important. Tell me theology isn't important. Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sin. Oh, I remember in university. I remember a lot of things in university. Some I'd rather forget, but I remember some. It's part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and having running battles with a couple of fellow students. And they were determined, this, their, their, their mantra, their cry, all we need to do is love Jesus. Just love Jesus. Sounds good on paper. But the question immediately begs is this, who is Jesus, pray tell? Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Why? Well, Jesus must be a man. We know that because we are flesh and blood, men and women, body and soul. And so the Lord Jesus had to be a man. He he needed body and soul in order to die as our substitute at Calvary's cross. He could not have died as our substitute if he hadn't been like us, body and soul, flesh, humans. But he wasn't merely man. He was fully man. But he was also fully God, the great I am. He was the infinite one. And by virtue of his deity, he imparts to his sacrifice in his humanity the infinite merit of his death at Calvary's cross. The infinite merit as God at Calvary's cross, the Lord Jesus Christ, is more than enough to cover my multitude of sin. It is more than enough to wipe away my deepest, darkest, most heinous sin. Because that shed blood and that life given is of infinite value. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is He, the great I Am. That's the first thing this name should mean to us. It should be the object of our faith. Secondly, God's name ought to be the object of our hope. He is infinite. Uh, no limits in terms of space and time that you get a brain cramp just trying to think about that. Unchangeable. Mind does not change. Plans, purposes do not change. Completely sovereign, governing all things according to the counsel of His will. How unlike us. And how, how, how overwhelming and how awe-inspiring and yet how precious to know that as a believer I address this great marvelous God as my Father. My Father. A Father who loves me. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. 
Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. As my Father, He hears me. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? As my Father, He disciplines me. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. As my Father, He comforts me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. As my Father, He blesses me. But no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. And as my Father, He keeps me. For I am sure That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Mabel Dennison wrote, Of all God's marvels transcendent, this wonder of wonders I see, that the God of such infinite greatness should care for the sparrows and me. He is the object of my hope. Thirdly, his name is the object of our worship. He is infinite, flowing, flowing from his limitlessness. We have his unchangeableness and his independence flowing from his unchangeableness, his faithfulness. Flowing from his independence or sovereignty, his mercy. And here we cry, who is a God like you? In the words of the psalmist, who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones. And awesome above all who are around him. And fourthly and finally, his name is the object of our wonder, our astonishment. That despised, rejected, humiliated, bruised, naked, wounded, pierced, broken, suffering man on Calvary's cross is the great I Am. Does that cause you to gasp? Do you gasp as you behold the I am hanging upon Calvary's cross? Do you gasp when you consider what it was that sent him there? Your sin. My sin. Do you gasp as the darkness falls and the wrath of God descends? Do you gasp and stand in awe and wonder at the love of God revealed so unequivocally and so wonderfully in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ? This morning, it is our great privilege to partake of the Lord's Supper. I hope and pray that as we do so this morning, we do so in an attitude of wonder.
sheer amazement of who our Savior is and of what our Savior has done. I encourage you to, to, to meditate, reflect on these, these truths that we have considered that God is infinite, that God is immutable, that God is sovereign, that God is, is faithful, that God is merciful. And to consider this great I am as he revealed himself to Moses, as recorded in Exodus chapter 3, to consider this great I am as you hear this cry of the Lord Jesus echo throughout the centuries to the present, before Abraham ever was, I am.